0: Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 16, Indie Cradle to Indie Grave. Recorded at Gen Con 2012 by Jason Morningstar. Presented by Jason Morningstar and James Ernest.
1: Restarting the two best games after having not... Yes. After having not published anything and not printed anything for about five years, for the last year or two I've been putting free games up online, uh, and now I'm starting to actually print stuff again. I have a Kickstarter running right now, please go click on it, um, and tell, you all, tell all your friends about it, and uh, yeah, we'll have new games in stores by the, probably by the spring, it takes a while. I'm
2: Jason Morningstar, I'm the co-founder of Bully Pulpit Games. Uh, we make uh, analog tabletop role-playing games. That's how you have to define it these days. No, don't let those suckers take you over. <laughs> you make role-playing games. Yeah. So we make role-playing games. We're a small press company uh, based in North Carolina, and uh, we also have a pretty robust web presence with uh, free games and also print and PDF products. And this panel is entitled... Uh, I don't remember. Somebody tell us what this people <laughs> tell us. Indie Cradle
0: to Indie Grave. Something,
2: something, something. Something, 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 yeah. <laughs> indie Cradle <laughs> to Indie <laughs> Grave. Alright. Well, in we should probably find out what you guys are interested in. What are you, what are you here to hear about?
0: Indie Cradle to Indie Grave. Making your own them. game from idea to publication.
1: So and then, and and then from there to the grave. a <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. somewhat small step. I actually, my company is actually rising from the grave as we speak now, so I can really talk about that. Um, uh, you know, I uh, I stopped publishing cheap ass games for uh, several reasons that all sort of came together at once. One of them was I had a large uh, warehouse full of inventory. I had a whole bunch of titles all in print. All of my profit was sitting in the warehouse. It was not money, it was games, which you cannot pay the rent with. And so I needed to stop printing stuff for a while. I needed to at least slow down quite a bit, um, or I was never going to get my money back out of my inventory. I couldn't just keep growing. I also had a pretty big staff. Well, if I stop printing stuff, I'm really going to stop selling stuff, and I need to stop paying people too. shrunk the staff back down to zero. Um, and I got a job offer from Microsoft which was too good to pass up at least out of the sake of curiosity so my time dwindled out of that too um, but I think all of that needed to happen because Cheapass was kind of laboring under a big, a big inventory and now a lot of that stuff is either sold or destroyed for a tax write off and I can start fresh with these are new games, new format and keep the, the number of them to a reasonable uh, amount what about you?
2: <laughs> uh w- well, sadly we don't have the inventory problems yet that uh, you're cursed with. Uh, I'm not proud of that no yeah. thanks, thanks. uh so uh, I think i represent the, the maybe the smaller scrappier end of the spect- of the small scrappy spectrum uh uh-huh. yeah i'm the I'm, I'm the titan of small scrappers, right <laughs> uh, so uh, we we have four titles in print uh, at any time. In addition to uh, digital downloads and uh, of those titles and other things as well, a a lot of free products. uh, And uh, we have a commitment to retailers, so we we make an effort to keep products in print and in stores, uh, as well as uh, available digitally. I'm not sure where we're going with that, but.
1: Thing that makes me think is uh, uh, you said that uh, it, unless you have things that are coming out that are their are new imprint, and you said that you have committed to, to keep certain things coming out. What is the level of commitment per year that retailers are expecting from them? Uh,
2: if they're smart, they're not expecting anything. Well, right? yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> so uh, I mean, how how how? Well, so our, our retailers don't want us to exclusively sell through Amazon. Uh, they don't want us to cut them out of the equation, which would be reasonably easy to do anymore. Um, we could set up our own web store, uh, we could sell physical products through it, we could sell digital products through it, and then the brick and mortar retailer uh, is, you know, uh, uh, high and dry. And so what what we're doing is embracing those retailers that get it, that understand the kind of games that we make, and support them, and build community around them, because ultimately that's good for our bottom line. Uh, and so we're we're. We discriminate uh, carefully and find the ones that are champions of our kind of products, which are, are weird, and uh, you know, there's a lot of skews involved that are, that are not related to gigantic hardcover uh, books. Uh, so it takes a, someone who you know, understands the kind of games we're making and appreciates that and encourages people to play them and offers uh, space and opportunities for people to
1: experience them. Retail's in a weird position right now because they don't typically stock very deep. There are a lot of product lines for them to choose from. There are a lot of publishers. And so they would love to just pick and choose from everything. And when they come to you and say, why are you going direct? Why can't I have your, your stuff? Even if they could have it, they're probably not going to buy very much of it. You don't necessarily rely on them. As a small publisher, you need to look at dis- different business plans. There is a business plan where you sell only direct over, over the web. You sell a very small number of products with a very high markup, and that's where your money comes from. There is a business plan where you sell primarily through distribution. You sell a much larger volume at a much lower markup. Which one of those numbers is better for you? Which one represents the less, the lower amount of risk? Not everyone needs to follow exactly the same structure with their business, but you need to at least have a plan of what your structure is going to be. And uh,
2: so. And, and uh, many retailers have uh, relationships with these distributors, and so they'll the um, independent game producers are off their radar because they're only uh, buying from Alliance. And if your if your product isn't stocked by Alliance, they don't even know it exists. People come and ask for it in the store. Uh, you know, a, a customer who wants to buy my game comes to the uh, the retailer and asks about it, and the retailer's like, "Well, it's Alliance doesn't have it, so I have to work extra hard to get it." As an example, um, and some retailers will do that, and some retailers will not. And the ones that won't, we don't want to talk to you anyway because they're they're not understanding
1: uh, how 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 their business is changing. In 1978, there was no such thing as telephones. Trust me on this. <laughs> Distributors did a job. They found out what your product was, and they told all the retail stores about it. And they and they took large pre-orders for that product and retail stores had one way to find out about what was coming out and that was through their distributor, right? In the 90s, distributors got lazy because there was this fire thing called Magic the Gathering that essentially sold itself and made up for 75% of their sales and they stopped caring about pushing every little thing that came through the door because they needed to sell magic. Retail stores went through the same development and manufacturers got this way of communicating directly to their consumers much easier than they could through ads in print magazines and solicitations through distrib- distribution. So as a publisher, I can now talk directly to my customer if I want to and completely bypass the distribution and retail channel. There are many other ways to do things now than there were then, and you can't expect the distributor, unfortunately, to do the same job. You're paying him the same amount, but he's doing less of a job for you now than he would have been under the old rules. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true.
2: So we're talking about distribution here. Is that I guess that's a piece of
1: indie cradle to indie grave. Yeah, I mean, if you're certainly interested in in being an independent uh, publisher, you need to know the ins and outs of of the standard retail and distribution model. And as I keep saying, you know, decide whether that's the right model for you or not. Some people just do their distribution in PDF exclusively online, print-on-demand books where they make one copy at a time, and and that works. Um, If your staff is small enough and your needs are small enough and your markup is big enough you can make a good business out of that.
0: So if you want to take a proactive approach of getting your game out to uh, distributors,
1: retailers, how would you go about doing that? It's it's hard to push product into the channel. It's really better to pull it. So when I got started with CheapAss, I showed my product to distributors and they said, ha ha, that's funny. Good luck with that, right? But they had my card, and that was important because I had customers then from going to cons and making people see it and play it that went to retail stores and says, where is this? And when the retailer went to their distributor, the distributor had heard of me. So you can give the distributor information, but it's really hard to actually give him product. He's got to want it. He's got to buy it.
2: Yeah, that that echoes our experience as well. We didn't really form a relationship with the distributor until the distributor really wanted to uh, stock what we had to offer. Um, Yeah, I think that's putting the cart before the horse a little bit, you know, there's lots of stuff that's going to come before you have to make those kinds of choices.
1: And, you know, there's wheeler dealers who are, that's their whole business, is pushing stuff into the channel. And that's good, actually, for games, because typically that stuff is sold non-returnable. But that's not really how you draw a business. Just filling up a pipe is not really how you do it. You really want to create pull at the other end and make sure that that pipe is flowing. So that means make your customers... Hungry for your stuff. The best way to get it is to go buy it at a retail store. Cheap-ass games are impulse buys. They should be at retail, right? No one's gonna spend seven fifty um, online by seeking out one of my games. They're gonna see it at a retail store and go, "Oh yeah, throw in one of those." So I gotta get cheap-ass at retail. So, um, so that works for me. But if you have a hundred-dollar RPG that has a really limited following and you can you can all you communicate with all these people directly it's for all of your expansions an and stuff. Hi. Hey, what's up? Um, <laughs> then it's not an impulse buy and people will go to your website and seek you out and give you that money directly
2: yeah, and, and in, I think uh, in our situation it's, we're, we're somewhat of a boutique publisher uh, so people are looking for our products uh, and looking for that particular kind of experience and so it's actually pretty easy for us to, to, to manage that we don't actually do any marketing at all Oh, well of course we do. I'm here doing panels at Gen con, which I guess is a form of marketing, and I'm active at games on demand running my games yeah my that, that is marketing games. it's cost effective
1: yeah. marketing, I think of you if you think marketing is synonymous with advertising, then
2: right. yeah, it yeah, isn't
1: really. all the work that we're doing, what I'm doing here, and sure. you know everyone who's exhibiting here is also marketing. Exhibitors aren't just here to make a profit on the show they're here to get their Products in the hands of the kind of people who will tell all their friends when they go back home. It's, a, it's a marketing expense. Yep. Like I, I don't know. AEG sold out of Smash Up um, on day two, like in the yeah. middle of yesterday. a New game from them. And they've got huge ads for this thing. And they brought more than, than they've ever brought of any other product, as far as they say, uh, and sold out of it that quickly. So. Is that bad for them that they're that they're already out of it? Of course not, because that's just more news that people take back to the retail store and say, I thought there was this game of GenCon, everybody bought it, I couldn't get one, how do I get one, pull it through retail, make the make the channel work?
2: And that's already starting. You see people playing it around the show, you know. So they're gonna go they're already converting people to increase this demand when they go home. That is true. That was a long answer to one question. It was. But I would love to hear some more questions.
0: As an indie publisher, how do you juggle the dual responsibility of being a game designer and a game marketer and a a, a business owner and operator? Do you find that one pulls more of your your mental resources than the other, or do you try to balance it all?
1: Well, I was a professional juggler before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You will you want to run a business yourself you have to be really good at running the business and if you're not you will waste a lot of your time doing it wrong um it's <coughs> always been a struggle for me to do exactly what you're saying to, to to balance that or to or to job out the parts that i didn't want to do I, I don't think you do i think you you know you, you used you you cut away other nice things like you know free time and television and your family
2: <laughs> I, I, and I'm in the position of having a partner, and uh, Steve handles many of the, the business pieces of it and print fulfillment, and uh, I, don't, I don't have to think about that too much, which is a, a wonderful luxury.
1: My wife pitches in. She does the taxes and the accounting, so at least that's covered, um, and certainly helps me make business plans and marketing decisions. Uh, I have experience in many of the parts of running the business that I need, um, and hey, my daughter's 10, so she can build games now. <laughs> Put her in the basement and chain her to a desk. That's right. This is your room now. That's a great question. Huh? I, I always say that you don't want to start a game company unless you like companies more than you like games, because you will spend most of your time running that company. And the, the less work you think it's going to be, the less cut out you are for it.
2: So, uh, going into that question, as far as, like, independent compared to just, you know, pushing onto a publisher, like, what are the pros and cons? What made you go independent yourself? So, uh, designing a game and choosing to become a publisher as opposed to designing a game and trying to get someone else to publish it for you, you're probably the guy to talk to about this.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Bigger risk and bigger reward. If you do it yourself and you know what you're doing, you can keep the lion's share of the money, um, but you also take all of the risk. If you make a product that you can't sell, then you have to eat that inventory. You have to eat those Scrabble tiles. Um, the real thing that has got me back doing my own games, though, is creativity and control. When I've, I've, I've Most of the games that I've sold to other publishers, I have not been satisfied with the way they came out. Now, to be clear, I'm not all that satisfied with most of the stuff I've made either, but at least I can take responsibility for it instead of just grouse about somebody else screwing up my game. So that, for the moment, is, what, is what's brought me back to publishing myself. Now, I, I, of course, I still do freelance game design work and consultation and all that, happy to do it, but um, uh, that is the real joy for me is when, when I need an answer on why does this game mechanic not work, I can make the call and make it better and do it do that today instead of going through another you know six months of emails.
2: And uh, In our case uh, we came out of a community that was sort of all about DIY that uh, was uh, almost evangelical about creating your own thing and then following your own vision of how, uh, the, how the game should be designed and implemented uh, and pro- providing the tools through mutualism to make that happen uh, so uh, there was never a question that we were gonna pitch our work to another company to, to fulfill. Um, it's just sort of how, how it happened.
0: What convinced you of well, the fact that whatever you're doing is good enough to be published?
1: I'm still not sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. That, that, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I booted my marketing from nothing. Um, as gradually as I could. When I made the very first cheap-ass games, I printed them on my laser printer and took them to a small convention in in California. And so there was not a, there were six titles. I took six titles to my first convention because I knew at at the price point that I was at, I couldn't get by with just one. And if that had not turned out well, I could have made changes. And certainly I did change things that did not work well. The envelopes do not last at all but well on a retail shelf. So we went to boxes for as many of the games as we could, and um, uh, starting small and iterating on the company on the business plan itself was was how we got started. We didn't have to be in over our heads very much on the first few products.
2: I will say that I review th- uh, things that I've done, and I, you know, I, I've grown and changed as a designer, and uh, can see things that are <coughs> clearly weak
1: spots, poor choices. Uh, you know, mistakes all the time. Yeah, I, I, I might, I probably won't, but I might make a career of just redoing all the games I've already published <laughs> because I, I, when I started doing the free games two years ago, I picked Deadwood, which is a game about making, uh, movies on a western backlot, And I picked it because it had been popular and because I remembered it as being quite good and quite done. But after ten years of designing other games, including moving into the computer game industry and learning a lot from that and, doing casino game design and doing a lot of analysis and writing articles and all this stuff that I've done since I made Deadwood, um, I realized that it was not actually all that good. It still had a good theme and it had a good flow, but it had a lot of individual mechanics that were just not there. Um, so uh, so I redid it, and I could do that again and again. I've got a bunch of games that could probably get that treatment. Yeah.
0: I have a question about uh, you can't do everything yourself like printing or writing and artists and I'm sure you work with other
1: contractors that do things I don't even know what's involved. How do you contact, how do you find these sorts of people? Here is a good place. Well yeah um, I'm actually a freelance writer, so yeah, yeah, this is where I do that. Yeah. Um, how do I find a like a printer?
0: oh god it, <laughs> it depends on what you want to print
1: um, and I would say that even if you're not doing the work you should at least learn how the work is done so that when they talk it's not like magic okay. um, but but different jobs have need different printers and I, I've done cheap ass games I've printed some of the components locally and some components can't be printed by just everyone cards are really hard to do so I, I job those out to big game manufacturers that make cards um so the, the square corner cards I do locally, the, the nice shuffleable ones I do at, at Cardamondi or Yaquinto you know, out of business. But. Oh,
2: and also, uh, you know, build your network uh, of, of people who are in the same position you are. Uh, right? So embrace mutualism. Uh, there are other people who have the same needs you do and uh, if you're dealing square with them, they're going to point you to the right people.
1: Right. I, you don't necessarily just come to GenCon to meet artists. As a publisher, you also meet other publishers so that you always have them in your back pocket and say, okay, I've never printed tokens before. Where do you get these done? and Get some, get some leads on, on printers. And,
2: and that applies to artists or uh, yeah. freelance editors or whatever, whatever you need. Those people are out there, and there are other people who have worked with them and done good work. Similarly, uh, if you're a freelance writer, uh, do good work. You know, that's, that's what's going to get you more work. You know, you do good work for me, and I'm going to tell James Ernest, and he will hire you. Right. Or do bad work. and I'm just, I'll just an example of that, Kevin. in that case. Right. Okay. James <laughs> Ernest is definitely going to hire you.
1: <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> I do all my
2: own editing. You all heard it. There's a question in the back. Um, well,
0: speaking of, you know, sort of leveraging collectivism, you know, collective intelligence here, how have you been using uh, social media tools to reach out? You know, at all stages of the process, from the creative process of coming up
1: with good ideas to you know developing and testing a game to selling. Poorly, but I'm working on it. This morning, in a game design panel, I told the audience a uh, story uh, of a game that I'm trying to to, to name. And I got an email about 10 minutes after with, I think, what's going to be the name of the game. <laughs> who, who was there for that this morning? Um, the name I got was, if I can't remember it, it's a bad name. Going Under. Going Under, yes. And you're the one who sent it, right? Okay. Well done, sir. I'm taking job. Good job. I've been bouncing that off on my friends. I still have to Google it and trademark search it and all that, but I think it's really solid. So, so I mean, not that this is social media, but uh, this is... Uh, well, this is Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, And and, uh, yeah, we're we're kind of like infants tickling ourselves with razors in the social media space too. Uh, (laughs) We're
1: doing our best. We're doing our best. I like that. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that to to replace the the phrase from from uh, Jurassic Park. You're like you're playing with science like a kid who's found his father's gun. Oh, but you, did, you also you mentioned, mentioned. the title of your next game. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you also asked your question about how you, how you uh, used it. I think that. the right name for that game is Crib Death. <laughs> there you go.
2: <laughs> SIDS. <laughs> um, you, uh, you also asked about playtesting and about sort of design chatter. And so, like, if it was playtesting, could you know people who are willing to take what you've done
0: and get a little, you know? Sure.
2: Well. Yeah, absolutely, and um, it's a it's a great tool for that to to uh, to find those people who are going to be reliable playtesters that that will uh, do blind testing for you and and give you feedback that you can then ignore um. <laughs> <laughs> that you can interpret for what it is. I'm sorry. There you
0: go. <laughs>
2: Oh, but but uh, yeah so so in, in my case i have a you know a pretty small circle of friends that that i will share drafts with and bounce ideas off of and and that's sort of uh, incremental uh, you know the my earliest and ugliest horrible sausage making things go to five people and then once i've got something that's pretty solid i might share that with uh, a larger circle of people that i trust and know uh, do, you know are going to Treat it critically and, and are thoughtful about it. Most of them are peers. Uh, and then finally, there's going to be some point at which I'm going to share it with lots and lots of people and get lots and lots of useless feedback. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not it's a little <laughs> useless. <laughs> uh, what do you consider your greatest success in how and Why
0: was it? And then your greatest failure in how Why was it?
1: What, is this is a job interview?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> My greatest failure is that I work too hard.
0: <laughs> I get along
2: too well with people. <laughs>
0: Do you, you think about your greatest
2: success? Because I'll talk about mine while you ruminate. If you I right. am ruminating. Okay, good. Personally. So my greatest success is a game called Fiasco, which has been just a, a, a really successful successful game. And the reason it's successful, I think, is because the previous game was my biggest failure. Uh, and I said, I'm going to make a new game that does everything that that one didn't. Um, and so it's not a game that makes you cry. Uh, it, it's not a game that uh, asks you to understand uh, the mechanisms of oppression in Warsaw in 1944. Um, it's, a, it's a game that you can play in a couple of hours. Uh, it's a, and so I set, I set up some design parameters for a space that I didn't think was being served uh, with role-playing games, uh, something that you can uh, get into and out of in several hours that's going to that be a complete experience uh, that's going to guide you in that experience and that it's replicable but evergreen, basically. So so I set out and said, that's that's what it has to be when it's done. What in the universe of possibility could meet those criteria? And starting from those first principles, I came up with a game that, that I think achieves those pretty well and that has been really popular and successful. So that's that's great. Uh, and the So have you ruminated enough? Do you know what your oh, yeah. success is? Oh, yeah.
1: Tell us. Well, I think that... Cheapass Games itself is what I'd consider my biggest success because in some ways, just like him, I looked at an underserved compartment of the gaming industry. Um, In 96, there was really a gulf under $10 that nobody was exploiting, and and it was just easy to move in there and set up shop. Um, There was kind of an arms race going on in production values. Card games were trying to look as good as Magic, and RPGs were trying to look as good as D&D, or Werewolf. And... And that just r- raised prices and production values right off the bottom, and when you could sneak in there. With, you know, my company was going to look cheap, whether I admitted it or not, so I just decided to make it a badge of honor and sort of bring people in on the joke. And so, and that worked tremendously. Everyone remembers that as the, the meat of why CheapAss exists. Um, uh, I, I don't know know big failure. I know, I know big mistakes. Um, the, the biggest mistake that I, I like to you know, think about all the time <laughs> I made a game called Fightball and we pre-sold nearly all of the press run by the time that it it came in. We came in and we shipped most of it out. Um, And so we panicked and made more instantly and we kind of should have not done that because we didn't really see how well it was selling all the way through. We we sold all that into distribution because distributors had a lot of faith in it which was great but um, they never reordered it and so that second print run was basically all mine. Ooh. Yeah. (coughs) <coughs> so, like, I, I reacted poorly to what I perceived as success. <laughs> so, I, I never had made any more success, <coughs> and then I was okay.
0: <laughs> so, like, going back to the Fiasco and the fundamental game design, I've not played it here yet, but it is radically different than any other game. And while I've seen a lot of them try new games it's just, you know, this is my new dice system for a role playing game. How did you come up with something like that? Just, what were your kind of influences on in that? Well, I'm away from this. Sure, i
2: suggest that it's incrementally different than other games uh, and uh, I wear my influences uh, on my sleeve. There are other games that uh, do all the things that Fiasco does or pieces of them that I, I, I put together in a way that, that works. So if you're really into the things that Fiasco does, there are tons of other games that you should look at. The uh, uh, games that influenced me, like Polaris and In a Wicked Age, and I could give you a big laundry list of games, most of which are done by really crazy small press, obsessed art house dudes uh, that are finding really interesting ways to tell stories and shape narratives and and uh, be dirty hippies at the role playing table. So so yeah, it's, it didn't it didn't just a Spring from my forehead, you know, like Zeus. You know, it—it it, uh, it was the product of me playing the hell out of everything I could get my hands on, uh, and with a particular focus on the area that I wanted to explore. Right. So that's—that's uh, that's what I would say, and I—I and I can't imagine that your experience is any different.
1: Yes, I also invented fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much like that. <laughs> which which yeah, which game are we talking about? Because I mean I've done a lot. And some of them did sort of spring fully from my head, sometimes in my sleep, and sometimes it, they were obviously just evolutions of existing games. Okay. Yeah? yeah. Sure. I do a lot of games. That's that's kind of why I started my, my company because I had more games than anyone else could buy. Um, I tried to sell games to the game industry before I started my own publishing house, and, and they just collected, you know, the, the, the few that I could pitch were nothing compared to the, few, the many, many that I, that I could make, so it's just kind of a, an escape valve, but nothing else. Of all of the expenses of setting a business out, the one that disturbs me the most is the lawyer
0: expense, talking to lawyers, what is the absolute minimum? recommended
1: uh, interaction with a lawyer? Zero. Yeah, absolutely. you write out your own contract. I don't know that I would recommend that, but, um, <laughs> but that's what I do. Um, contracts don't have to be hard to understand. That's just sort of a little trick that lawyers use to make their job look hard. But in my, I, I feel like I'm going to like just go straight to hell for saying this, but but in most cases you don't need a lawyer. And I, I, I'm saying that not just because it's my opinion, but because a lawyer told me that once. Um, you, if you don't understand, though, what contracts say and what they should say and what they should have in them, and if you don't have good reference material for what a contract should say, then you definitely need to get a little help. But um, know people, get to know people. All the lawyers that I mostly have gotten help from and, uh, <laughs> have, been, uh, have been friends, and the contracts that I typically use have been variations of contracts that I've signed with other people.
2: It totally echoes my experience. Uh, and, like, uh, you know, building, building this community of, of practice, people that you know that do this stuff. We know a lawyer who's also a game designer. And so, you know, we, you know, I, I edit his drafts, and he looks at our contracts, and it's
1: all good. Uh, and, you know, I've received enough cease and desist letters, but now I have a really good template. <laughs>
2: I have two questions. One is, did you start companies with your friends or was it strictly professional that everybody started with?
1: Oh, friends.
2: It, okay, since you did start with friends, I presume you did too. I did, yeah. Okay. yeah. How do you hold them accountable? Because it's easy, you know, in my, in my job it's okay, like, okay, if you didn't get this done, now you're going to get it written up, or disciplined or whatnot. you can't do that with your friends, like, okay, you're going to to the doctor now, or spend you, or whatnot, you know. What? I, you know it's,
1: it's really hard, and I've lost friends over it too. Um, you sometimes have to fire people when they're not doing their jobs. You know, I love you, but you're screwing up my books. Yep. Uh, and that—that's not an easy message to take. And so you have to be prepared to lose friendships over those business relationships. I have a friend who borrowed a bunch of money from his friends, and um, no, excuse me, who lent money to his friends. This is this—I've got it backwards. He's my friend. He's not me. I have a friend who lent a bunch of money to his friends and you know the time came when he needed to get it back and he's like I, I, it's really it's really tough for me to go and hit these guys up for money and I said well too late you made that decision when you loaned it to them you already decided to have to have this conversation so don't say it's like a decision that you have to make now you already did it and the same thing is with hiring your friends you, when you hire your friends you have to be prepared to fire them that minute because eventually it could happen some of my relationships are, you know, uh, I've had people who work for me, do editing and stuff for me, but they're not really my employee, they're just contracting, and there's no real friction when they don't get any, any more jobs, because that's okay. Yeah,
2: Yeah, the same, same here. Like, uh, there, there are people who are pals of mine uh, that we might hire to edit or, you know, do some thing, and if, if they screw it up, they never do it again, and we, we can still be friends. Um, Now my partner Steve is one of my best friends in the world and there's definitely some tension there because we we both need to be doing what's best for the company all the time and uh, so we have a pretty transparent relationship and a lot of long discussions about how things should be done and that seems to work for us. Did you have a comment about that? You had your hand Um, up earlier. I I guess I was going
0: to say that, um, and it was sort of a question too. Um, you know, when getting projects going and, you know, maybe establishing business partnerships, but you know, basically setting up your business plan for whatever you're going to be doing, what do you, what kind of um, measures do you build into it, you know, with your collaborators, so you can say, okay, here's how we evaluate, say, how, you know, how well this project is going, how, what our expectations are up front, so that you can perhaps have that conversation and say, okay, we both agree that these were the expectations.
1: Uh, Write it like a contract, you know? Put your business plan on paper and put everyone's responsibilities and expectations down on paper, and then there's not so much confusion at the other end of the pipe. And we uh, sort of overlaid on top of that in our
2: case was a mandate from both our wives that we not lose any money. Uh, So that's that's sort of above the contract level.
1: (laughs) Not losing any money is a tall order. That's that's how we have to operate. (laughs) (laughs) Not not even like in the sofa. I mean, so... (laughs) Running a business is gambling. It's gambling with an edge. You have the advantage. You should have a good product and a pretty good chance to succeed. But there is still a chance to fail. Um, I think you you can't minimize that to zero. You can say, I wasted a lot of my time on this, but but, um, you can also you know, lose money. Yeah, sure. Do you go through a formal
0: business planning
1: process, though? You know, my business planning process is a lot like my game designing process. I talk to all my friends about my business plan. I give them the five-minute spiel, and I fine-tune it every time, and I get feedback from them, and eventually it I just it's just like in my head. Like what I'm going to do with CheapAss, um, I'm doing a Kickstarter right now for a deluxe reprint of an older game, but it's not what I'm going to do exclusively. I want to do new games in the black-and-white format. Um, so I've been talking about the details of how that integrates in my Kickstarter program and how I rule those out over time with all of my friends at this con, you know, and every time getting a little feedback and, 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 and fine-tuning the ideas. The reverse, how do you deal with success then? one of the
0: downsides of it, but besides...
1: I have
2: no memory of success. It <laughs> <laughs> makes it easier. We, we had we recently had a, a stroke of good fortune that was uh, somewhat unexpected. Uh, the, the show Tabletop decided that they were going to highlight Fiasco, and there's a, there's a very known quantity of sort of a tabletop bump, right? It has a large audience and people watch, watch it and then slavishly buy whatever is recommended. Um, and so we, we knew that that was coming right they, they asked for permission to <coughs> use the game we supported them and uh, so we knew it was coming and there was a timeline for that and we found out uh, sort of offhand actually that they had moved us up a month which uh, which became an enormous problem a, a problem of success right we, we knew that we were going to be selling a ton of books uh, but we were going to be selling them a month before we had planned <laughs> we were hoping to sell them a month before we had planned the, the you know we had We'd organized the process, and the process had included an extra month that they had denied us through their change in scheduling. Um, so that's that's an example of something that, that uh, could happen as a.
1: I I think we did pretty poorly with success too because um, when Chiefest was about five years old, we we had grown to what for me was big, about six or seven full-time employees, and under the principle that a business needs to grow or die, we basically grew and. In the process of hiring more people and being more ambitious with our convention schedule and being more ambitious with our production values and doing a whole line of color games, we grew our gross revenues, but we really shrank our net. Um, and and that was the point I was talking about before, where it was time to scale back and get rid of some people and get rid of some inventory. So that you know that was that was bad. Bad business, bad idea. I think that there might have been a threshold beyond which we would have started being more profitable again, but we never really reached it, and it was just time to shrink back down. Do
0: either of you publish anyone else's
2: games? No, you only publish your own project. Yeah, and I, uh, I freelance too. Like I, I write for Pelgrane and other companies, uh, but only as a hobby. You know, I. But no, we don't.
1: I, I publish, uh, one game by Tom Jolly. I published a game by my friend, Jim Geldmacher. Um, I have a co-designer, a pretty major co-design credit on Unexploded Cow um, with Paul Peterson. And those are the exceptions. And these are all people that I either knew or really respected, and Tom Jolly was a big name in the industry. And I appreciate what they've done, and they made some great games for me. But when I look back at what I should reprint, um, it is a a real pain in the ass to deal with their continuing interest in the game, their royalties and, and the money that they get. And when I think about that, I shy away from that and want to go back with myself with something that I own completely. The same thing is true of artwork. There's artwork that I bought outright and there's artwork that I licensed only for the original game. And so when I go back to that, well, the artwork that I own is the artwork that I'm most likely to use because it's not a hassle to use it again. Mm. Um, and I'm you know I'm not saying never take submissions, obviously. Please do and, and, and give designers their royalties and, and everything. But if... In my situation, I'm also a designer, the things that I've designed are just so much easier for me down the road to to develop on than, than the things that I've shared ownership. Sure, you have a question? Um, with with ebooks becoming such a big thing right
0: now and the you know, technology developing getting showing more promise all the time. I guess I'm wondering um, if you have any thoughts about how you might um, take advantage of that particular way of distributing the product especially since
2: it's greater so quicker to market than print? Sure. In, well, in, in our case, um, we view uh, the electronic product as a product. So we're, we're uh, generating a PDF, a Mobi file, an EPUB, and the the person who purchases our game gets those uh, uh, without any DRM. It's just beyond PDF. Beyond PDF. Uh, so, like, apps... Uh, <laughs>
0: Like that that have come out
2: they're not just a PDF for something you interact with oh sure um, yeah I, I would love to do that we're not we're not there right now
1: I do board games yeah. <laughs> so I do have PDFs downloadable you know free versions of my board games but someone's still got to put together put them together and it's usually too much of a hassle for someone to do it we just basically have them up there for reference um, and and to to uh, to actually make a board game distributable electronically, it basically needs to be an app. And we've done a couple of those, but they're they're hit and miss. One, yeah,
0: I'm not necessarily talking about the play as the game itself being that book, but the way of you know, explaining the rules, for
1: instance, you could have an embedded demo. You right. Sure, yeah. Like that. Yep. Right, and it would make sense for me to put up how to play videos, things like that. Um, I left my last job um, in June, and I'm sort of still cobbling together the cheap business plan and when do I have time to post these videos and so on but I mean yes it's a great idea
2: and that's uh, it, it, you mentioned social media earlier and, and it's, it's such a great opportunity to be reactive uh, to what your, you know, your audience is asking for one of the things that I learned uh, playing at, at conventions uh, fiasco in particular was that people would say this is really cool that you, you could uh, sort of facilitate a game of this in two hours but I can't do that at home how do you do it and I put together a web video about playing Fiasco Fast that people that people can look at and, and, you know, it was a direct response to that need that was perceived. Well,
0: instead of so you needing to be there in person, you can send them to watch this video and contact me if you
1: have any other questions. Totally. So, you know. Yep. I needed to build some prototyping videos to, to teach people, game designers how to build prototypes, but also my players how to just output the PDFs and build, you know, my games to play. And uh, I have a... Another reason to do it because I think I'm teaching a game design class at DigiPen in the spring and I can just refer people to those videos for how to build all the prototypes. <clears throat> ISBN copyright. I, I know we can order and buy onesie or a PAX of 10 for
0: the ISBNs. Do um, can, can you do that? you buy the
1: ISBNs? Do you do different ones for the digital copies versus the print copy? Uh.
2: My partner handles that, and I know that we do buy blocks of ISBNs, but I, don't, I can't answer that.
1: I, I only buy ISBNs if I'm making a product that sells into a customer that requires them. Most of my games don't have them. Um, you can assign them whatever you want. You basically get a, a list of them, a book of them, and just say, okay, this is this. Um, but that kind of stock tracking is mostly for the book trade. Um, what we do in the hobby game industry is a three-letter company code. So cheap, CAG is Best Games. Uh, and, a, and a number code after that, that product code is more standardized in, in the hobby game industry than in ISBN. Okay. And that comes, that three-letter code is moderated by the greater games industry catalog. It used to be called Games Quarterly. Um, they, 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 they don't require, nobody requires it, but you can go to them and say, is anybody using CAG? And they go, yeah, actually, she best has that. You might want to try something else. And, and those three-letter codes are what all the distributors use in their stock systems. Oh, okay. Uh, what about copyrights? I don't know Obviously, once you write something, you have the moral right to it. So, once you have the copyright, yeah, but it doesn't have to be court a lot.
0: Really, until register. you can not
1: it to register register copyright. Um, and then what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, the, all, all the copyright protects is the exact expression of the work. And as soon as somebody reverse engineers it and writes it again, you have no protection. So you would
0: have
1: recommended... I don't think it's worth your time to hassle with it. I, and you know, the only thing that we have is a saving grace that there's no money in this business, so nobody risks <laughs> anything wrong. But, yeah, and it's a, it's an issue of reputation too, right? I mean,
2: it's an, it's essentially a non-issue.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I think there's there's an inclination to try to protect intellectual property. It's very expensive and difficult. And like I said, in the hobby game industry, it's not worth doing. There are other industries in which it is worth doing. The casino game industry being the opposite end of the spectrum, but. Um, you know, with exceptions I won't list in public, there are not a lot of, of game companies that are unscrupulous enough to just rip off the mechanic and, and republish it. Um, there's some designers who do it by accident. Please, I hope it was by accident. But um, but it's it's rarely malicious and, and there just isn't enough money in it. If someone wants to have your thing, it's easy enough for them to just buy it. How about over here? Please? Should you be a game designer and know how to design a game to feed the owner of a I feel like they're different skill sets um I I think I'm both out of just necessity but it makes as much sense to find a business owner who just does that thing like Penny Arcade is successful because of Robert Koo who's their business manager and does everything amazingly well and so Mike and Jerry can just make their comic and write their their blog um that, that's a great business relationship. Uh, I don't happen to be in one of those. I don't have a Robert Koop, but uh, I really wish I did.
2: And I feel like I'm fortunate that uh, my partner handles a lot of those things and, and uh, gives me the opportunity to just take time to design, which uh, is great. What do you about PDF versus print?
1: Because I've seen
2: print. If you want to buy a PDF, they will buy it, but then it can be torn over to the holder. Place just drop that up as a well, I hope so. I mean, uh, uh, is, is the the guy who's going to get it off Demonoid, he's not my customer. Uh, you know, hopefully he will find my customer. He'll, he'll play it with some people who love my game, and then they'll go buy it. Uh, we don't copy protect things. Uh, we don't seed torrents, and we put a, a note in the back of the digital edition that says, "Hey, if you really like this, here are some things that you could do to support the the two
1: guys who made it." Uh, but beyond that. I, I don't like DRM at all. I think it just keeps customers who you might actually get money from, from ever finding out about your product. And in fact, that's why all the free cheap-ass games online are, are creative commons. They're like, please, yes, go copy this. Just keep it intact. Um, and if you like it, kick us a dollar or buy something that has our name on it. And uh, just uh, sort of anecdotally, uh,
2: watching chatter uh, on a torrenting sites, you, people, some, there's, a, there's some percentage of people who respect that. Uh, who are going to steal your game anyway and that's cool but uh, you see chatter about that page in the back of our book that says hey be cool about this you know. Uh, and in our case we say go buy it or if you're not going to buy it go give some money to the EFF or do something good and uh, that seems to resonate uh, that, that we understand that it's a gray area and we're not going to be dicks about it and we're going to trust you to, to do what's right in your case and so that works for us there are other uh, role-playing game companies that release things under Creative Commons licenses and deliberately seed uh, torrents uh, and uh, have achieved really great success with that as well. So I would say that's a non-issue. That if you're fighting the pirates electronically, you just you've already lost. That's that's just dumb.
0: <laughs>
1: now I'm, I'm lucky enough that a board and card game is hard to torrent still. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh,
2: until the 3D printers are in every living room, perhaps? Yeah, I, I think not. No.
1: <laughs> you can't 3D print a good shuffleable card. <coughs> yeah. I true. mean, not yet. Until we have, <laughs> until we have replicators, <laughs> and then we're all on of luck. <laughs> in the road? Do you guys still love games the way you did before
2: you got into the industry?
1: I love them differently. <laughs> Right, as an, as an outsider, you appreciate movies. You're like, "That was awesome." He kicked ass, right? And if you make movies, you're like, "Why did they cut it so quick?" Or you know, "Why is the camera so shaky?" You just see different things, but you love them even more. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, crazy about
2: games. I still adore playing games, uh, my own games, other people's games. Uh, I'm uh, I'm damaged in the head about my love for games, so. I think that's true. Well, and you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, if you're a lighting designer, you're never going to enjoy uh, seeing a well-lit play again because you won't.
1: I think that's totally accurate. Uh. Yeah, playing new games with me is no fun. <laughs> I'm like the driver who screams at other drivers even though he knows it can't be heard. I'm always like, why did you design this like this? To the designer who's not in the room.
2: What's your experience been with Kickstarter, and are there any other, um, I guess, resources that are similar to Kickstarter that you've had
1: successful? Well, there's lots of crowdfunding uh, resources now. I don't, I'm not familiar with all of them. I just started on Kickstarter last week. Uh, so my experience so far has been ramping up to it. And um, the, how everyone in the world is an expert all of a sudden on Kickstarter. And I tend to only try to listen to people who have themselves had successful Kickstarters, but I still get more advice than I can handle. Um, there's, there's good resources at Kickstarter. Um, the, the sort of non-existent Kickstarter for dummies book is, is pretty much their, their help pages that will tell you, you know, good advice that they have about how to make a successful campaign. Uh, and they also, once you start a Kickstarter, the
2: metrics are really great. They, they provide you with a lot of information and feedback. Well, we just about a month ago wrapped uh, a really successful Kickstarter campaign for a new game. Um, and it was an interesting experience that I'm not sure we'll repeat. Um, it, were we to do that do it again, I think I would uh, treat it as a pre-order. That we would uh, essentially create a product and use that as a way to build buzz and interest in, in getting the game without Sort of really diving into the deep end of a, an elaborate campaign with uh, multiple tiers and stretch goals, which is what we did, uh, and uh, was not uh, it was not a pleasant experience. We found ourselves committing to things I found myself committing to things uh, that otherwise I, I wouldn't have done in the name of, of achieving great success so uh, you know boohoo me, we made a bunch of money uh, but. Uh, I, in the process of that, it meant that we were going to have to produce some things to, to meet these commitments that otherwise we wouldn't have done, and that I don't... Can I even say this? I probably shouldn't say this. That that, I, that, that doesn't necessarily add value to the product, right? So, like, uh, we created a gorgeous set of surveyor cards to go with our new game, uh, and they're beautiful, and they're really neat, but they don't do anything that the game itself doesn't do. They're something... They're an object to possess. Uh, and I, I, I have a very mixed feeling about whether that's something that we should be doing uh, as, a, as
1: a designer and creator. Yeah, we, we tried to limit the benefits of our Kickstarter to the things that were not going to cost us extra money to make and ship, because it really is about raising money to print the game. Yeah, that's And smart. every $15 t-shirt that I get away for $10 is just cutting money out of printing the game, which is the point of raising the money. Yeah. All the things that we're doing on unexploded cow, most of the things that we're doing on unexploded cow are... Um, our uh, services, you know, I make you a video, I do consulting on your on your game design, those are ridiculously expensive, silly goals, but um, you get to name one of the cows in the game. as the real block of, of, of me, middle-tier uh, pledge numbers, and, and that helps the game. It involves you in the game, and it doesn't mean I'm shipping you another product, a T-shirt or a button or something. Are you
0: concerned about the arms race of sort of... Um Kickstarting and various tiers and so forth. I mean, I've seen lots of t- lots
1: of things on Kickstarter recently. Games most notably, where I don't want most of that stuff. I just want the game, and it's it's taken away from the game. Or I uh, well, I'm I'm also concerned that if you make the uh, the bonus awards for Kickstarter subscribers good enough that when your Kickstarter is over. Everyone else who gets your product will feel cheated out. of them. <laughs> Yeah, that's something that I, I mean, think. Are we're you are do you doing. really here to just raise money, or are you here to make a product? And and the conversation that I have with retailers about how I'm going around them by using Kickstarter as a pre-order system is not is not that at all. It's that I'm raising enough money to print a small number that go to these people, so that I can give the rest to retail. There's no other way I can do this. I mean, the thing that concerns me most is to so say you think that you should make a game that should cost twenty five dollars, but you bumped it up to thirty
0: five. Because you want to basically offset the cost of adding these extra bonuses that theoretically lots of your consumers don't actually
1: want in the first place. Well, yeah, right. no, I think that's a terrible way to build your campaign. Yeah. I, I, my, my subscribers get the game for what it will probably be at retail. So they're getting the game for free shipping and no... No extra stuff it's, it's a matter of how you structure those tiers
2: right and so you in our case we're going to be selling an electronic edition and a print edition and those are priced precisely the way they will be at retail and if you want more cool stuff there's a whole list of cool stuff that you can add after that and as a consumer, I don't even look at that cool stuff if I'm thinking about uh, you know supporting a Kickstarter project I just buy the thing
0: and'.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the next um, evolution of Kickstarter is going to be ratings for, for, make, for makers um, so that people can sort of sort between the I'm not sure this is ever coming out makers and the ones that are really reliable. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that's true, but I think it would probably help break down that vast number of people who are on Kickstarter right now into, into better chunks. We probably have time for one more question. And I would love to answer it. Can I get uh, No, absolutely not. Wait, wait. Let's throw the answer out to the audience.
0: Whoa, <laughs>
1: Surely there's someone here who will give this man a <laughs> There we go. We'll crowdsource it. I think we have, we have one more. Well, um, I wasn't part of this, but years ago I understand that the was sort of the event to really discuss game design
0: in the RPG.
2: Th- role playing games
0: it's closed and I guess I'm wondering where that discussion
2: right now oh there's all kinds of places yeah Google Plus you know the, the, many of those people in that diaspora are, are hanging out with their little cool friends in Google Plus StoryGames.com is a place where a lot of people chatter about that stuff um, it, it has literally been a diaspora so th- those
1: conversations take place in lots of different places now board games are on board game gate right that's yep. where all that traffic is I guess. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, that's the only place I read it, but you know, I try not to read too much of it because of all the reviews they have of my games. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for coming to our panel. Thank you. My Kickstarter runs until September 14th. Go click on it and tell your friends. Nice plug. Thank you. <laughs>